singing. The subject is singing, which might seem rather ironic, as I said in my post, because we never sing at the Bible class, apart from once a year. But we want to look at this in the context of a local church, and to do so, we'll read first of all in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to break into a section at verse number 17. Ephesians 5, reading from verse 17. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God, and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now that's the reading, and although it's a short reading, we are going to look at various scriptures from both Old and New Testament this evening as we look at the subject of singing. Now when you think about the subject of singing in relation to a local church, you might wonder why bother speaking about such a thing. When you think about the gatherings, the assembly gatherings, the church gatherings, that you would attend, quite a large part of that involves singing. You probably sing at most local church gatherings. And it's good to test what we do and what we practice against scripture, even something as basic as that. Is there scriptural authority for so doing? What's the purpose of it? You know, sometimes, and this is probably why we start a wee bit late at the Bible class, because we don't have singing, and usually singing gives folk the opportunity to come late and they wait until the kind of hymn prayer hymn, the hymn sang, which is over, and they will come in just in time for the meeting. And so maybe that's why we start a wee bit late and we don't have the singing. But singing should surely be much more than that if we're going to do it at all. It should be like all things we do as a local church. It should be done intelligently, intentionally, and it should be done with awareness of the spiritual value of what we do. It's not just a time filler. It's not just something that we do because we like the tunes or we like the the atmosphere that singing might produce. We want to see this evening from Scripture that singing is an integral part of a local church and has spiritual significance and value and importance for us as Christians. And that's why we sing. Now let's just rewind in our thinking back to this idea of music and singing. Now music is a gift from God. We have been, some more than others I would have to say, but we have been gifted with the ability of either producing music or appreciating music that others produce. Most of us in the appreciation section, there's just a few of us in the production section, but we have an ability God-given to appreciate music, to enjoy music, and also to express ourselves in music, even if it is music produced by other people and lyrics produced by other people. We often find ourselves expressing our emotions or expressing something in song or in music. And so music is a gift from God. It's part of his creation and he has put the ability to appreciate and produce it within the realm of mankind. It is what we might call a common grace. You don't need to be a Christian to produce music, not even to appreciate music. It is a common grace. It's something that all people can enjoy. Now, when you come to the Bible, you find that music and singing, they are in the Bible. They are in the Bible from the beginning right until the end. 
It's interesting that that idea of common grace and the, the beneficial effect of music and singing is found, for example, in the experience of Saul in 1 Samuel. You remember King Saul was troubled and the only thing that calmed his troubled spirit was David who sang to him and played the harp to him. And the sound of that music and the songs that David sang brought a peace and brought calm to Saul in his trouble. Now, as Christians, we can see singing and music beyond even that, because the Bible says we have been given a new song to sing, and that new song is in our heart. It's a timeless song. It's a song of redemption, and so we can sing God's praises in relation to creation, in relation to these common graces, but we also have a new song to sing. We have the song of salvation to sing as Christians and we can worship God with our understanding and appreciate him and appreciate the salvation that we've been brought into. One way of expressing that is in song. I do think, however, having said that, there requires to be a balance and adjustment on the emphasis today that's placed upon music and singing. And just to suggest to you that there appears to be an emphasis which is unbiblical placed upon music and singing amongst Christians. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, for example, if you go into a Christian bookshop or you go online and you are looking to buy Christian material and you will see a tab on the website or a section in the bookshop or the Christian Resource Centre marked Worship. And if you go into that worship section, you'll find it's a music section. And the word worship and music are often used synonymously, interchangeably. And that's not correct. That's not biblical. Music is not worship and worship is not music. They are not the same words. There is a difference. And we want to see the difference because that difference is important. Singing is a means, God-given, to express worship, but it is not the same thing. It is a means to express worship. That's why we can borrow somebody else's words when our own are perhaps not good enough or not able to express what our hearts are feeling or want to express or our understanding. And we, we use the songs that others have written to express these things. It's interesting that actually the best expression of worship is not singing. The best expression of worship when you come to the Bible is obedience as opposed to singing. You know, sometimes we might call um, worship leaders those who are actually praise leaders. You see, you never, and I often think this, you never call someone who's in charge of the cleaning rota a worship leader. But they're as much a worship leader as the person who leads the praise, the singing, or starts the singing, or whatever. The person who's going door to door with the gospel leaflets, or the person who's out helping, or the person who's serving, bringing someone to the local church gatherings in their car, you don't call them a worship leader. Yet they're as much involved in worship by what they do as those who are involved in the singing of the hymns. So singing and worship are not synonymous. Now, the other thing to say is just this, that music does not produce worship. Worship is actually produced by the Holy Spirit. And music 
or singing, as I say, is a means to express that worship. But it's not produced by the music. And so my worship comes, as we're going to see, from truth that I love and that I've come to understand. Now, emotion does not induce that, but emotion responds to that. Music is an expression of that. But worship is an understanding of truth and an expression of that. Now, we're going to see that that's very important when we think about some of the superficiality of worship that we see round about us. Now, thirdly, music is also never evangelism in the Bible. It never is. It's interesting that the songs of the redeemed in Scripture belong to the redeemed. And that there is an indirect effect upon others who hear them. And what happens is that the truth of the salvation change, which is being demonstrated in the songs of the redeemed, expressed in the songs of the redeemed, can have an impact. But you do not in the New Testament see evangelism done by singing. You don't see it. And so it's a mistake, again, to see that as being synonymous. It's not. So music and singing are not synonymous with worship. Music does not produce worship. In other words, you come along to the local church gatherings and you hear music or you, you hear singing and you're stirred by it. Your emotions are stirred by it. Now that can happen with music that's got nothing to do with Christianity. It can do exactly the same thing. The difference in Christian things is that your music and your singing is responding to truth that you understand and want to express. That's why the lyrics of what we sing are so important. It's not just any old words will do. But the lyrics are an important expression of the truth that we understand and we express it in song and in music and by so doing express our worship before God. Now, the world is full of music and song. But the Christian Psalm 96 verse 1, sing to the Lord a new song. Isaiah 42 verse 10, sing to the Lord a new song. And we ought to be careful about the songs that we sing. We have a new song to sing. We ought to be careful about the lyrics that we take upon our lips of songs that are not Christian songs. Expressing all sorts of themes that are worldly and sinful. Expressing all sorts of stuff. Be very careful. The music might be enticing and intoxicating even. But be careful about the lyrics that you're actually singing. And so as Christians, we sing a new song. And we're going to see that this has always been a means of expressing worship amongst God's people. Always. Let me give you an example from, well, a few examples from Old Testament history and see how important this was to the people of God in the Old Testament. Now, according to 1 Chronicles 23 and verse 5, there were nearly 40,000 people who served in the temple in Jerusalem in one way or another. That's a lot of people. And 4,000 of them were in the music department. That's a big music department. And you get that from First Chronicles, as I say, 23 verse 5. You also find this in Exodus chapter 15, verses 20 to 21, that Miriam, the sister of Moses, she led a woman's choir, a woman's chorus. So you've got all that going on in the Old Testament. 
1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 5, the prophets, they made up a male chorus and they had instruments as well. You find in 1 Chronicles 13, verse 8 and 1 Chronicles 15, verse 28, that the congregation sang praise to God with instruments, and it says this, with all their might. With all their might. You know, if it's worth singing, sing it out. Sing it with heart and with purpose and as skillfully as you can, but sing it out. You know, you, you go to a funeral and you discover this because that's often the only time when you'll sing hymns with significant numbers of people who are not Christians. And you find this, that the, the thing's not being sung out. And you know what a difference when the Christians get together and, and we sing these songs, the songs of the redeemed, and we sing them with passion and we sing them with commitment and we sing them with understanding because we're expressing to God something. We're speaking to God as we'll see and we're speaking to each other and it means something, it's significant. So we stand and we sing or we sit and we sing, but we do so intentionally with purpose. We don't just do it to pass the time. We shouldn't. So in Old Testament times, they sang with their might. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, you find this, that David, he had a tabernacle choir. Now, not, not a metropolitan tabernacle, but he had a big tabernacle choir. You find in Ezra chapter 2 and verse 65, when the temple was rebuilt, they reconstituted the choir, albeit only 200 strong. Only 200 strong. And then in Nehemiah chapter 12, you have the revival going on and there was this antiphonal loud singing. That means the people were singing back and forth. There was a question and there was an answer. There was a statement and there was a response. That beautiful form of singing took place. It must have been amazing to be in amongst the people of God as they sang like that. You find if you skip over into millennial kingdom conditions that is past our age into that age that is to come when Christ returns in the manifestation of his glory and establishes his kingdom you find this in Ezekiel chapter 40 that there will be a millennial temple and in that millennial temple there again will be a 4,000 strong choir now, some of you have been privileged enough to stand in a hall where there's maybe been a thousand people or two thousand people or something like that, and you've heard them sing. You imagine a four thousand strong choir singing God's praise. Beautiful. What about the New Testament? Well, you find this in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 30 that the disciples sang. In fact, just before the Lord Jesus went to the cross, how beautiful to think that he and the disciples, it says this in chapter 26 and verse 30, that after they had sung a hymn, he went out into the Mount of Olives. Before his suffering, before the awfulness that lay before him, he sang a hymn with his disciples. And after that, the church started to sing and has been singing ever since now this whole idea of singing and praise has been a battleground and it's been a battleground this battle with praise because anything that has value and spiritual significance is always under attack it's always under attack 
Now, the importance of singing the praises of God is evident from the number of times it's commanded in Scripture. I won't go through the references, but repeatedly the people of God are commanded to sing God's praises. Repeatedly. Right through the Old and New Testament. Now, mark you, most of the exhortations are found in the Old Testament. The majority of them. And you might think, well, perhaps there's a difference when you come to the New Testament. Perhaps there's not to be any singing or the singing is to be less significant. Not so. For yes, the majority of the exhortations to the people of God are in the Old Testament. But you find this, that the Apostle Paul expects and indeed exhorts the Christians to sing, to sing psalms. Ephesians 5 verse 19, Colossians 3 verse 16. And if the exhortation is in the New Testament for the church to sing psalms, the psalms taken from the Old Testament, and not just the psalms, the hymns, the spiritual songs, then there is a connection between these Old Testament exhortations and the New Testament exhortations by the Apostle Paul. For example, listen to the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 13 and verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. James 5 verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Well, not at the moment, but the looks of things. But, you know, that maybe is a rhetorical question. But is anyone cheerful? What do you do if you're cheerful? Well, what do you do when you're cheerful? You sing. You know, you sing in the shower. And then, I'm only guessing that to be true. But, you know, I haven't been walking about outside your house listening for you. But I have absolutely no doubt that you sing in the shower. I know folks who I could look at sing in the shower because I hear them take their phone in, get the music going, and they sing. David's mortified, but it's true. <laughs> you can sing a whole album of Casting Towns in the shower, the length he's in. But anyway, singing in the shower or whatever. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. But it doesn't just say let him sing. It says let him sing psalms. You know, as a Christian, what is the song of our heart? What is the song of our heart? Let him sing. Yes, let him sing psalms. So here is, the, here is the response of a Christian. Are you in trouble? Are you suffering? Get on your knees and pray. Are you cheerful? Are you having a good day? Sing God's praise. Express it. Let it go. Let it out. Sing. I'm not going to mention you, Gordon, and the car thing. Okay, I might. <laughs> no, I won't. You ought to be able to fulfill the, old, the New Testament scriptures about singing. And remember, there are some very pointed accusations that come through in scripture. For example, shall a man rob God? And that's in relation to worship in the Old Testament, but could easily be applied to us in the New Testament. Do we rob God? God wants to hear us express our praise, our worship. He wants to hear us sing. He wants to hear us speak. He wants to hear us pray. Do we rob God of praise? Why? Because we're self-conscious. So when we come together, we don't want to sing because we don't like the sound of our own voice. So we just don't sing, just stand and mime or mutter or something or drone, whatever, but we just kind of don't do it. Or perhaps we're just too lazy, we can't be bothered, and a hymn gets given out, and we just stand there, and we just stand, you just stand, and then you realise everyone's just about to sit down, you sit down again, and it's just been a nothing, it's been a nothing thing. 
That's not what singing's all about. Now, let me just give you some idea as to what the Bible would speak to us in order, or say to us, in order to encourage us to praise. We need to be reminded of these things. Number one, God deserves our praise. Let's not forget it. God deserves it. Listen to Psalm 18 and verse 3. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. He is worthy of our songs. Let us sing them to him. He's worthy of our praise. God not only deserves our praise, God demands our praise. He does. Listen to Psalm 47 verses 6 and 7. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises unto our King. Sing praises. Why? For God is the King of all the earth. Sing ye praises with understanding. Let us not fall into the practice of depriving God what is rightfully his and what he demands of us by simple disobedience. Let us sing our praises to God. Malachi 3 verse 8, I've referred you to, Will a man rob God? And they said, Wherein have it? How have we robbed God? And, they, and the answer comes back in tithes and offerings. And what they gave to God was deficient. It wasn't what he expected. It wasn't what he demanded. But let's come to the New Testament. That is by way of introduction in relation to singing and worship generally. So we focus in in the New Testament and in particular this little section that I've read to you from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Now notice what it says in these verses. There's an exhortation to not be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So he says, be filled with the Spirit. Now let's dig into this to see what he's saying in this section. The command grammatically can be expressed in this way, being kept filled with the Spirit. It's a command for continuity. It expresses the idea of permeation, being dominated to the point of being controlled. Listen to other usages of this expression, or this type of expression. John 16, verse 6, filled with sorrow. Luke 5, 26, filled with fear. Luke 6, verse 11, filled with madness. Acts 6, verse 5, filled with faith. Acts 5, verse 3, filled with Satan. Now, the word filled is being used in the same way in each of these expressions. It's being used of control. It's being used of being dominated by, as I say, being controlled. So the exhortation by Paul is this, don't allow yourself to be controlled by alcohol. Rather, allow yourself to be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. When someone is drunk, they lose control to the alcohol. You've heard the expression, it was the drink speaking, it was the drink. And people do things that otherwise they would not do. It's the old kind of Monday morning, you know, kind of trading stories as to how outrageous, outrageous the behaviour was and how terrible it was and all that kind of stuff of the weekend before. People doing things that they wouldn't do sober, they do drunk because they're controlled by the alcohol. They've lost control. Paul says, do not allow yourself to be put in that position. Don't put yourself in that position, but submit yourself and allow yourself to be continually controlled by the Spirit of God. 
Now, that was a complete contrast to the worship of the pagan system that they'd been saved from, where alcohol was a big part of it. And they took alcohol, which induced certain behaviour, certain feverish behaviour, certain type of worship, and there was a sexual side to it, an immoral side to it, an ecstatic side to it as well, alcohol fueled. So that is not Christian worship. It's not alcohol fueled. It's not produced or facilitated by any substance. It is an expression of knowledge, of appreciation, of intelligent understanding of our God and his salvation. And it's expressed under the control of the Holy Spirit of God in accordance to his revealed word. That is the worship that God seeks and accepts. So he says, be filled with the Spirit. And this was such a contrast. People were used to seeing religion expressed in drunkenness and strange behaviour. That's why in the day of Pentecost, you remember the disciples, and they were controlled by the Spirit of God and speaking in tongues. And when people looked at them, they thought, there's a group of religious people, and they were saying this, it's early in the day to be drunk. They assumed... That they were just like other religious groups, alcohol fueled strange behaviour. And they said the disciples were drunk. He says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, how do you actually do that? That's one of these expressions you can take him and say, yeah, I'm going to be filled with the Spirit. And then tomorrow you say, how do I do that? You know, that's something I want in my life. Where do I go about doing that? Is it some sort of mystical thing? Is it some kind of unattainable, intangible? Well, the answer is no, because there's a parallel passage in Scripture that, when brought together with that verse that I've been reading, gives practical instruction as to how to do that. It's found in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. It's the parallel passage to Ephesians chapter 5. So Colossians 3 verse 16 says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So there's the parallel text. So Paul says in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. Allow the Spirit of God who indwells you as a believer. And let me just say, by way of an aside, that that is true of every single believer in the Lord Jesus. Paul teaches in the same epistle of Ephesians that upon believing you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That is, every single Christian at the point of conversion is indwelt by the Spirit of God. He comes and takes up residence permanently in our heart. So he's there, he is present. But the issue is, what control do we give to him? He's there, but what do we allow him to control? And how do we give control to him? Well, it's not just sitting in a lotus position, humming and saying, right, and I'm going to empty my mind. It's the opposite of that. Christian progress is never accomplished by emptying your mind. It is accomplished by filling your mind with the word of God and allowing the word of God to shape character and then you submit your will to it in obedience. 
so that in Colossians chapter 3, the word of Christ dwelling in you richly is the parallel section and expression to that in Ephesians 5 where it says, be filled with the Spirit. So to be filled with the Spirit is lined up alongside this expression, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So tomorrow, how do I start exceeding or whatever the word should be, giving over control to the Spirit of God in my life. What do I do tomorrow? I lift the Bible and I start reading. That's how I start. And I read the Bible. And then I keep reading the Bible. And I purpose in my mind that I am going to saturate my thought life, my mind, so that my will will respond to what I know and I will submit to the word of Christ that will dwell in me. It will take up residence in me. And in so doing, I will be controlled by the Spirit of God. It's a very practical thing. If I'm not reading the Bible, I will not be filled with the Spirit. If I am not responding in submitting my will and in obedience to the word of Christ, if I don't give it residence, I will not be controlled by the Spirit of God. Now, how does the Spirit of God control us? How does that work out practically? But we're going to see how it controls in relation to worship, in relation to singing, in relation to this. But, you know, in a broad statement, let me put it this way. You've gone into the day, okay, so things are busy, your head's full of stuff, all legitimate, the things of the day. Folk are talking to you, you're having to process stuff, you're having to do your job, you're having to have your mind filled with lots of things. And there's decisions coming to you, making decisions all day long. Small decisions, sometimes big decisions. So the day is complex. So you've entered the day, and again, you've read the Bible. You've been reading the Bible daily. You've got into a routine, a habit. You read it when you want to, and you read it when you don't. You just discipline yourself. You get your mind and body and your, your daily routine, and you get a hold of it, and you shape it, and you form it to this purpose, that you will read the Bible every day. You will read it more than once. You might read a short amount, doesn't matter. But you are investing in Scripture. You find this then, that the Word of Christ becomes part of your thought pattern. Not necessarily that you can have some amazing memory and you can quote Psalm 119, you know, win a prize or this kind of thing. You know, you might have a shocking memory. My short-term memory is terrible. And, you know, I used to be able to quote huge screeds as a child on this, not on this platform, the platform that was here before. But I can remember that. I can't quote the same as I did when I was younger. But that's not really the idea. It's not a memory test. This isn't a memory verse for the day. The word of Christ is going to take up residence and dwell in your heart and it will become part of the way that you think. The way that you are, the way that you act will actually be educated by, formed by and moulded by scripture. The spirit of God doing that work. He takes the word of God and he shapes your thinking so that you actually, when faced with things, respond in a certain way without even having to give it a huge amount of thought. You turn from sin and you turn towards righteousness and it becomes instinctive. It becomes the way that you live. You can't always quote a verse to justify your thinking or decision, but you're being shaped into Christ's likeness by the word of God and the spirit of God is doing that. He's controlling you. He's shaping you, not mystically, 
but by Scripture. Hence the importance of learning not only what the words say, but what they mean. What they mean. So memorising Scripture is excellent, but understanding what you learn is also important so that we understand the truth of it. So this is a big thing. So Paul says, don't empty your mind. Don't sell yourself to substances. Get yourself under control. Allow the word of God, of Christ, to dwell in you richly. Allow the spirit of God to take the word of God to shape your character into a person that will please God. And you will be filled by the Spirit of God. That is being filled with the Spirit of God. So it's not second blessing. It's not a mystical mountain to climb. It's not something intangible and for other people. It's nuts and bolts Christianity. It's the ABC stuff. So he says be filled with the Spirit. That is how we do it. Now before I go beyond that, let me just say this as well. I should have said this earlier, but let me just put it in. That singing about Christian things in a Christian setting is not always pleasing to the Lord. You see, the Lord is not interested, and evidently so, in orthodoxy and in formulaic Christianity. He wants the real thing. It's not so much just what we do and say and sing. There has to be a correct heart that is being expressed by these things. You know, the expression externally can all be there and the heart is cold as ice. You can sing your heart out to whatever songs you sing and God will not listen. He won't listen. How do I know that? Listen to Amos chapter 5, verse 23 and verse 24. This is strong words by the prophet. He says, take away from me the noise of your songs. You know, you can take that out of context and say sometimes, you know, when you hear folks singing, you want to say that as well. Please take away from me the noise of your songs. They're hideous. And in a kind of superficial level, you can understand that. But here's the significance of God saying it. Nothing wrong with the songs they were singing. Songs were good. But to God they were just a noise. Why were they just a noise? Listen to this. He says, I will not listen to your songs and I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. So even good music and good songs. God said, I'm not listening. Why? He says, rather, let justice roll like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He really says to them, stop singing what is not actually true in your life. Stop singing words that aren't true. Now, I don't know anyone that could honestly say that everything they sing is true in their own experience. I, don't, I mean, you'd only need to sing a few hymns before you're outside your own personal experience at that point. 
because usually these hymns are the kind of pinnacle of spiritual experience expressed by people and they've got the gift to do that and to put it into song and you aspire often to, to what the hymn is expressing. You aren't there yourself, but there's aspiration in your singing. True heart aspiration. And so you can, even as I'm saying that, you can think about songs and you sing them and you aspire to the truth of them. Other songs you sing and you've been there before and you would like to get back there again. Other songs you express and they are filled with theology about God and you want to just immerse yourself in the truth that's being expressed and just enjoy God as expressed in the song. And it's an expression of truth that you've come to know and love. But sometimes we sing things that we know just aren't true. We know and we get convicted by it, at least I do. And you sing the song and kind of singing as a hypocrite well don't stop the singing the idea is just this fix the hypocrisy and sing on and so here he says take away the noise of your songs take away the sound of your harps God would rather of justice and righteousness he wants the real thing then he'll take our songs and so there is religious singing that is offensive to the Lord, which is singing that is not a work of the Holy Spirit. It's offensive. So what does it say in Ephesians chapter 5? So first of all, we've looked at this expression, be filled with the Spirit. Then it says this, speaking to yourselves. Now, you, you must have heard this done. You know, it's the old thing, someone gives out a hymn and there's a kind of awkward silence. Bridget Weirs and Richard's not here. He, he's, he can get tunes for everything, it seems, but when he's not there, then some of us have to bear that awful burden. And sometimes it's just an awkward silence. And then you try and get some sort of tune. But have you ever experienced, I'm sure you have, when no one knows the tune and someone then decides it's a great idea, let's just say the words. And then you don't know if you have to say them with a beat or you have to say them in tune. Or you have to, and so it all just kind of is very awkward and you're standing chiming away like Dominican monks or something. Um, it's not really the idea. That's not the idea here. He's not saying if you can't sing, speak. But what he's saying is this, that all singing is communication. All singing is communication. So he says this, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves, communicating among yourselves. He's actually speaking, not about the singing in the shower. He's speaking about singing together as a local church. This is the significance of that expression, speaking one to another. The idea is just this, speaking among yourselves. It's corporate worship that's being referred to. And he uses the word Speaking, communicating. Should I try and say this word? Onomatopoeic. Got it out. That's what it is in the original word. Its meaning is like its sound. And so that word apparently was used of animals, which may be appropriate, of the sounds of a baby, the chirping of birds, all that kind of thing. And then secondarily, it came to mean to say or to sing, or to speak rather. And then again, it seems to have changed its meaning or, or developed its meaning to simply be used as communicating, speaking, communicating. So what Paul is saying this, under the control of the Spirit of God, you will communicate amongst yourselves. 
and do so by singing. In psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in or with your heart. So he says, we are speaking while we sing. We are communicating while we sing. Speaking to yourselves, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart. Now, this kind of died out amongst Christians for generations until the reformers came along and they rediscovered many truths of the gospel and they also started to write hymns. And there wasn't much hymn writing for generations. Folks just sang the psalms and they didn't write hymns. But the reformers were big into hymns and hymn writing and they produced hymns for congregational singing. And the people of God started to sing congregationally things other than the Psalms for the first time in about a thousand years. Amazing. This scripture is encouraging congregational singing. So we sing together. We communicate with each other as we do so. Now this is an encouragement because you cannot actually fulfill this scripture unless you are at local church gathering. You can't. This is one of the many scriptures that I've referred to in previous Bible classes which point to the importance of being part of a local church and being committed and integral to that local church. Because here's another scripture that you won't be able to fulfill if you are not. So you can't obey this unless you're meeting congregationally with the local church. Now notice this as well. It's not just uh, the repetition of certain songs, but rather your heart is to be involved in. It is either from your heart or in your heart. But the idea is just this. What is being said is an overflow of what is coming from your heart. It's not simply your mouth that's engaged. Your heart should be engaged because the essence of Christian worship is not liturgical actions it's not chanting even tunefully it is rather this an inner authentic value of God in your heart informed by scripture under the control of the spirit that bursts forth literally that finds its expression joyfully in singing but the heart reality has to be there it's good to sing the songs it's far better to sing from the heart from the understanding, with wisdom, as we learn the truth of God. And to whom do we sing? Well, the verses tell us to whom we are singing. Speaking to yourselves, among yourselves, in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in or with your heart to the Lord. Someone wrote this, God is the audience. Now, Surely that changes our perspective when we sing. I want to assure you that when you come together with the people of God to sing, God listens. He listens to our singing. He is the audience. We sing to him. We communicate truth amongst ourselves, but he is the principal audience to what we sing. Changes it, doesn't it? To know that our song is heard in heaven. Where the tune is not quite so important as the heart that expresses it. So we're singing to the Lord. God is the audience. We sing to him. Mark this. 
When you think about worship, worship is to be centred upon God. And not just centred upon God, not just Christ-centred. The Lord is the Lord Jesus, but in verse 20, thanks are continually offered to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's God-centred, it's Christ-centred, it relates to God, it relates to Christ. And it's rendered to God. It's sung to him. Now, here's a little test about the things that we sing. All the things that we sing. Do a little test of it. How much is about us and how much is about God? If it's more about us than God, there is an imbalance. Because true worship is centred in him, not in us. Now there is an appreciation of what he has done for us, don't get me wrong. But if it's all about us, then there is an incorrect balance in that song. Worship should be centred upon him. It should draw out our affections for him. It should be rendered to him. It should be a true heart expression of what we've come to understand and love and appreciate about God. Because God is to be worshipped, not us. And that's where many, unfortunately, worship bands, song leaders and so on fall down, whereby literally the spotlights are all upon a person or a group of people or upon musical ability and talent, God-given. But if the focus is on the singer or the focus is on the people who are making the music to accompany the song, the focus is all wrong. The focus must be upon God. And otherwise, there's an imbalance. Now that's true, that's not a, that's not a side swipe at one particular um, category of music. That's true of the, um, the kind of orchestral music where people are amazed at the quality of instrument playing and music that's produced. And it's right through to through, through the more modern band worship stuff that goes on. It's true of all of that. But it's also very true when we come together as congregations, as a local church. The focus must be upon God. So what do we sing? Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Not just psalms. Psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Now there's evidently distinctions in these words, although the distinctions are quite hard to make. They evidently meant something to the Ephesians as they heard it. And if you read 10 different commentaries, you'll get 10 different distinctions made here. What it speaks to me in simplicity is this, that there is a breadth of musical expression available to us. So it's not all psalms, whatever you might think these psalms are. It's not all hymns. It's not all spiritual songs. There's a variety, there's a breadth, there's a depth to the way that we can sing our praises to God. They can be songs, psalms perhaps, experiential songs of our experience of God, our experience with God as the psalmist came to know God and express their knowledge of God. Hymns, perhaps some think that more in terms of praise relating to salvation. Spiritual songs, more kind of testimony songs. However we divide these things up, get this, there is a breadth. There, there, is, a, there is a lot of ways 
to express our song and worship. So what is our conclusion? As a local church, should we sing? The answer is yes. Should we sing as part of our local church gatherings? The answer is yes. Here is one of the clearest mandates for corporate singing and the expression of worship in that fashion in the New Testament. You cannot obey this in solitude. And God calls us to speak to one another in song, rendering it to God as worship. So we should get together and sing. And it's good to do that. It's interesting that some of our great hymns and worship songs are addressed not to God, but to each other about God and about salvation. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Crown him with many crowns. Majesty. Worship his majesty. These are exhorting each other in praise and worship to God. And many times we sing directly to God. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14 gives the conclusion to all of this. Verses 15 to 16. In fact, the verse commences in that way. What is the conclusion then? The conclusion of Paul when he's speaking about an assembly gathering in that section as he does in chapter 14. He says, I will pray with the spirit and I will also pray with the understanding. Then he speaks about singing and he says this, I will sing with the spirit. And here's something. And I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say? So he's speaking about public expressions of worship in prayer and in singing. And these things have to be done and they have to be done with the heart, but also with the understanding. So it's not emotion ruling everything, being swayed by a certain song, and it doesn't really matter what the words are. Rather this, it is an intelligent appreciation of divine truth expressed with the heart, and joyfully so. For God means for us to hear each other pray and to hear each other sing, so that we can make corporate responses of agreement to what we say and what we sing. And we can say, Amen. Not just at the giving of thanks, but at the end of our song, we can say, Amen. Why? Because we understood what we sang. And we believed it. And we expressed it. And we say, Amen, when we sing the worship and praise of God. So if you find singing difficult because you can't hold a tune, which is true of many of us, don't worry about that so much. Sing. If you're good at singing, sing. But make sure that you sing intentionally and that you understand the spiritual significance and value of so doing. So that when you come to the assembly gatherings, don't plan to come and think, well, there'll be a couple of hymns, so just slip in. You know, there's always ten minutes and and you know, while others are gathering, this sort of thing, you know. And it's just, it's just a time filler. Singing should be far more intentional than that. And that is the thinking, actually, in our Bible class, why we get together once a year for the sole purpose of singing at the end of the year.
intentionally worshipping and praising God through song corporately at the end of the year for all his goodness. And we trust God will bless his word to us as we've studied it together. Now let's do